Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, and indeed, uh, it's at the nose, which I'm so disoriented these days. I can't remember whether I did one last week or not, but we're doing the nose today. It's a weekly cultural roundtable. Back in the old days, there were always three people plus me. But uh, I sort of arbitrarily shrank the panel size during the COVID era, which is very hard to keep track of people otherwise. And we're doing something we've never done before. It may even be illegal, which is we are interbreeding our New Haven nose panel with our Hartford nose panel. So we have a group bunch, a bunch of people up in Hartford. They're on the nose. You know, they tend to combinations of them. We've got a group of people in New Haven. They do the same thing. But it did occur to us a little while ago, since we're on just sort of virtually everywhere. I mean, I mean, it's just like, you know, nobody's really anywhere anymore. We could have a New Haven person on with a Hartford person. We're not using studios. So that's what's happening. I don't know why you would care about that. Why did I just go on about that? Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. She's joining us via Skype. Uh, Mercy Quay is founder and principal mm. consultant for The Narrative Project and a columnist for the Hearst Connecticut Media Group. As am I. Um, all right. So a little bit later in this in the episode, we are going to talk about I May Destroy You. I May Destroy You is uh, a British product by an auteur named Michaela Cole. Uh, it is, I don't know, I think principally about sort of the bad things people do to one another, especially uh, men to women and men to men. Uh, but we'll say more about that uh, at that time. We'll also briefly experience a spirit of nostalgia, a sense of nostalgia for the early days of Serial when it was so new and fun and different. It was, okay, it was about a capital murder case, but it was still sort of fun. Uh, and now it's a big deal. It's a big brand, and it has been acquired by an even bigger brand, the New York Times. We'll tell you about that. But we are going to begin begin with an argument made by a writer, Joel Goldby, uh, in The Guardian, uh, he says the moment has finally come. We have run out of TV. We have scraped the bottom of the barrel and the first layer of wood the barrel is made from. So what do we watch instead? So first of all, well, both of you, welcome to the show. And Irene, I think I'll have you get us started here. Did is that is that the case? Have you and everybody else watched everything that you either need or want to watch or is something else going on? Because I, I should say, People have started to say stuff like that to me, like I'm running out of I've run out of things to binge. What else can I binge? But so what are they saying when they say that? Well, I mean, my first thought is that it's more it's more the experience of sitting in front of the TV, watching something and watching another one and another one and another one that just since we're not able to punctuate that by going out. We just have to, we just, you know, like most of us are pretty much homebound, um, at least in terms of leisure. And so I think it's, it's part of it is just the experience of, I'm just so tired of watching TV. It's really hard to imagine getting excited by something new. Yeah, I know there's all this other stuff out there, but I don't even know what channel it's on and do I, and what stars and do I even have that and what's going on. And so there's a, the, like a malaise. I would say that it's about the experience of just watching TV in general, as opposed to the shows that are on. But I guess his point is that it's, is it something about the shows that are on themselves that we've just run out of? Yeah. And I mean, Probably I'd be happy to speak to that, but I, Mercy, I want to hear where your thoughts go on this. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's a funny place. They go to a funny place. Um, I think that the argument that we are running out of content for me is proven by the fact that I have taken to watching King of the Hill um, and my daily, right? Like, what am I going to watch scramble 
reminds me of an episode of King of the Hill in which, you know, uh, 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 Bobby Hill, Hank Hill's son and his two friends are trying to think what, uh, about what they're going to do for the rest of that uh, evening. And they're throwing out ideas. We could do this. We could do this. And then uh, one of the friends goes, um, well, we could go to the library and Bobby Hill responds, well, why don't we just go back to school and wait for tomorrow? And that's so much of how I've been feeling lately. <laughs> is that the cartoon, King of the Hill? Yes. It, 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 it's it's a cartoon, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen it. Yeah. I mean, I've, yeah. Yeah, wow. I, I, I think, first of all, t TV has been asked to do more than TV is really intended to be able to do. And at a time where, yeah, I mean, almost every other kind of artistic or cultural experience we have involves some kind of increased sensory immersion, right? So if you're walking around an art museum, it smells a certain way, it looks a certain way, there's people walking around near you who are causing you to feel certain ways about them. You can't go to a jazz club or a blues bar or anything like that and drink Even a beer. A yeah, yeah, you can't even go to a movie, can't drink, can't, but you know, but it's not just, it's sort of, you know, it's it, it, all these other things, they involve an engagement of the senses and of the physical body. When you go somewhere, that just is the case. Your body's in a different space. Whereas television, rather uniquely, uh, at least among the electronic media, is something that, you know, the, your surroundings don't change all that much. And I think that's a lot of the problem that, that like, okay, we've done everything with television that we want to do. It's not that there's not content. If people haven't watched The Wire or Battlestar Galactica or Rectify or the Larry Sanders show, which I think invented the modern era of comedy, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's like really good stuff to watch, but that's not the problem. And Mercy, you had this very interesting idea that that in some ways some some of the willingness of of people to leave their comfortable homes and get out into the streets recently in a time of protest may have been uh, aided or at least given a little extra kick in the rear or a boost by their feelings of ennui about television. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I, I feel strongly about this. I think that the recent surge in support for Black Lives Matter um, came you know, can be in part credited to the lack of content. I think that, you know, for around, you know, at the point where George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed, um, we're talking about, you know, May, uh, Labor uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, and by that point, we have we were in the pandemic for more than uh, just around three months. And so everything that anyone was binging is over and people were diving into show holes and seeking new content. And when you are in a show hole, and I know this be, uh, from, you know, even before the pandemic, when you're in the show hole, you might spend more time with people in real life. And if that's not an option, you might spend more time on social media. And so I feel as though there's this willingness to um, be a little bit more tuned in because we're not, we're tuned into society because we're not tuned into our televisions right now. Um, and so I think, being tuned into what was going on was the first step. But then, oh, wait, there's there's a great right, uh, highest unemployment in decades. People are home. People are just home. And if I don't have anything to do with my day and there's no TV keeping me inside and entertained and I was just outraged by this thing I saw on social media. Now I now I feel right that we can take, uh, you know, theory to practice and take to the streets. I, I think that 
the lack of content people are getting um, right now is is adding in some ways to their social activism. And I'm not I'm not knocking that. I just think it's an interesting evolution. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Myron. Go ahead. Uh, um, well, I have two things. Uh, one is, I, I, Mercy, I think that's a really that's a great idea, and I think it also is connected to social movements everywhere. The 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 social side of it, the fact that you can go out and believe in something together with other people, and you can fight for it. You know, it's inspiring and energizing in such a good way. And it's true that finally, maybe television is pushing us out of the house instead of pulling us back in. You know, that's a, that's a really good, good point. And, and I'm there, you know, I, I, I think it makes sense. Also it's outside and you don't get as much exposure when you're outside and you can wear a mask and then just be with people. And yeah, I mean, that was my experience, even just going to a couple of demonstrations in West Hartford. Um, and, but, but I, can I, but I just want to get, the, did you use the word show hole as what you get into when you're when you're sucked into a show? Is that what you is that was that show, the word you used? Show hole when you when you when you have run out of content, when you've binged the last of your bingeable content. Oh, okay. Because it's not like I a K-hole. Not, yeah, okay. Sort of like when you get because I think there's also another element that has to do directly with the TV is the fact that there's so many things that go on. You know, like I love the show Succession, Homeland, Ozark. But the thought that, okay, is there going to, well, Homeland's over, but after so many seasons, you know, and the idea that it just, it's so different from a movie that you see it's two hours and then you can talk about it and it's a full created experience, you know, but the shows that go on and on, I mean, we used to make fun of soap operas, you know, because they just never end. And I think there's something about the fact like, okay, there's going to be another one and another one, you know, so there's no resolution. There's more just like, let's go on and on. And, And even if you really love a show, it kind of feels like, all right, enough already. Let's just like, it sort of feels good when we get to the end, even, you know, as opposed to wanting to, it to just go on and on like you do maybe in the beginning um, stages of watching a show. You know, so Irene, I, I, Irene I, one thing that I'd like to sort of bring up too is, and you're a great example of this. So you are somebody who during, you know, the resumption of real life uh, or the real life that preceded the life that we have now, you liked to go to um, symphonies. So the symphony orchestra used to go watch uh, yeah. the symphony. So there, there's an example of something where, you know, first of all, there's there's a tr- the symphony orchestra struggle with this tremendous burden, which is that it's just a lot of work to get yourself to the symphony and the tickets aren't ne- not ne- are not necessarily that cheap. And, you know, it's it's in people you know, for a long time I've been saying, well, I could just stay home and watch something on my television. And I think it, what's interesting now is how clear it is that you can't just endlessly stay home and replace <laughs> other kinds of live culture with television. We've now, we now are the study group for that. This, you know, global experiment has gone on about how much of your cultural uptake can be provided by television. And certainly it seems, Irene, the answer is not all of it. I mean, don't you, you must miss going to see oh. Carolyn Kwan conduct in So person. much. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's a really good point. I really like that point too. You know, it's sort of like, it's reminding us or, or even just like helping us understand why those things are so valuable. But yeah, I mean, you can listen to a symphony at home, which I do, but it's just not the same. I mean, the experience of going, it sort of makes me feel connected to, you know, old Europe, you know, when people would go to symphonies and people get dressed up and talk and you see people at intermission and, uh, and just 
being in the in the room with the orchestra as they're playing and watching Carolyn Kwan conducting is is the most beautiful experience, one of the most beautiful experiences ever. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, they just can't be re replicated by listening to it, uh, you and know. On, that, on and I just think that so much of that is because it, it, it might have less to do with the, you know, having a variety and a diversity of content to consume. Um, as much as it is about needing to leave the house and needing just a change of scenery, right? I think that even if Hollywood was back in session and outside was open right now, but and we were getting content, but we still had to stay inside, I don't know that it would make it any easier. I think that when you're, even when you're consuming new content, if the scenery is the same and you aren't interacting with any new people, right? It, it starts to all blend together and you know, take the joy out of experiencing something new if it's not exactly. a true new experience. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think this is also very much part of the history of digital life as well. So, you know, when when the digital revolution began in the 90s, there was this kind of immediate sense of, oh, wow, we just can exist virtually and interact with all kinds of people that we've never met before and wouldn't meet any other way. And, and there was this sense that we could become these disembodied selves that would go all over the place and do all kinds of things. Uh, through through digital life. Uh, and there was that famous cartoon in the New Yorker that showed the dog at the laptop and it said on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, but the truth was pretty quickly people started saying, oh, so let's, we got to do some meetups. You know, when are we going to meet up? Uh, we all got to meet up here. And, and, and then pretty soon, like people got in touch with one another with very specific kinds of cultural interests. And I think that really kind of fueled, let's say, the Comic-Con music and uh, movement and other stuff too. Because people started saying, oh, wow, it's great to meet you on the internet. When can we meet up? When can we all get together and put on funny costumes? Um, and, yeah. and I think there's sort of, you know, there's that too, that we already knew something, which is, there's, there's only so far we can go in a disembodied state before we need to be back in our bodies and, and, and be around other people somehow. And I, I feel like that's the TV fatigue I'm seeing now. But somebody else respond. Well, yes, absolutely. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not the material. It's, I mean, he makes the point that you, it sends you scuttling back to um, uh, old familiar sitcoms. And I didn't get that at all. You know, like, why would you then, you know, that, that didn't really make any sense for the argument. So I guess we're just using his argument as a jumping off point. But it's interesting that the guy who wrote this article said, no, he, he, you know, you don't want a new one. You just want to go back to the old you know, ver friends reruns or whatever. And that didn't make any sense because yes, we need, we need other bodies. That's what we really need. Right. Yeah. yeah. I want new characters. I want new storylines. I want new plots. I think um, revisiting some of the old stuff is, is, is fine, but you know, sometimes it's hard to revisit uh, the, you know, seasons one through seven of Homeland in the, in our country's present state. Right. Or, you know, this this I'm sure in a couple of weeks they'll be releasing um, who will be releasing, uh, you know, the most recent season of Handmaid's Tale. And do I want to watch that right now? So some of it is sort of like the things that we were we got really used to watching the dystopian dramas that we got used to watching are hard to consume in this particular moment. 
Absolutely. Yes. Well, perhaps now it's a, a, a little a trending point. We can sort of switch gears here a little bit. Uh, the news came out this week uh, that cereal, cereal, the brand, I think we should say, first of all, S-E-R-I-A-L and that kind of cereal, the cereal that <laughs> gave you initially uh, a first season that was about uh, a perhaps improperly adjudicated murder case in Baltimore uh, and went from there uh, to uh, the story uh, of um, a guy who went AWOL in Afghanistan and he's gone on and on and on to lots of other places uh, but it really was the very first hit in the world of the podcast it could be argued that there still hasn't been a comparable hit in the world of podcasts <laughs> after all this time uh, but uh, it turns out that company uh, and the people who do that work there Sarah Koenig is the name most people know but there are a lot of other key people behind that as well it's all worth something some people thought it might be worth $75 million. It got sold. It got bought by the New York Times. Um, it's, there are differing interpretations of how the deal works. It's either worth $25 million or maybe $50 million. There may be some performance incentive clauses in there somewhere, or at least I think that's what I got from Nick Qua or whoever I was reading about. But So, um, I don't know. Mercy, do you want to get us going here? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know what exactly there is to say about this uh, um, other than it kind of ties in a little bit to the conversation we had. People are looking for new content, and they're a little bit tired of their TVs. Yeah. I so I, I dove into an article um, TechCrunch ran on this and and um, the reporter referred to Serial as the only podcast outside of your own that your parents know um, and I think it's, I think it's spot on I think it was a wise buy for the New York Times but I also wonder what it will be in the hands of the New York Times um, and I also dove into some of the statistics around right like. Because I do think that you're right, there's a through line into having, you know, uh, lacking content when it comes to television. But what's sprouting, you know, in the in the in the world of audio and podcast insights right now says that there are currently over a million podcasts. Right. Um, With (laughs) specifically since April this year. Um, there are 30 million new episodes of podcasts in <laughs> April this year. And so, I mean, this stands in sharp and, and, you know, a stark contrast to what we're getting with television. And part of that is because podcasts are just easier to make. Now, that said, Serial is not an easy podcast to make. There's a great deal of research and reporting and actual production work that goes into making it. So I'd like to see what will happen to it in the New York Times' hands because we haven't seen them take on a narrative-style podcast in the past. No, certainly not that style. I mean, they they did prove that they could jump into the game feed first and create something like The Daily, which it just, uh, you know, it was shocking how quickly uh, that turned out to be, you know, an incredibly important podcast. Uh, Now, a lot of it involved pulling people from the world of public radio to come in and make a public radio sound, radio sounding podcast. So in a way they've kind of repeated the same thing here, although this time they're just taking it in whole hog. So, but Irene, right. yeah, you, what are you you're thinking about all this? Um, okay. So two things, first of all, with a, you can listen to a podcast while you're walking around and maybe that's part of it. You don't have to sit on your couch. You don't have to sit anywhere. And, and so I think there's something you can also do other things while you, while you're listening to it. And so it's kind of an attractive 
format just for that reason. I mean, I love to go for a walk and listen to a podcast. And I think it's, you know, get, sort of like doing two things at once and also seeing people and being out in the world and still taking in the content. So I, I, I get the appeal of podcast or driving in the car, et cetera. Um, I also, I wonder, you know, what, you know, if that's more the model that people like, what that means about radio, but that's, a, that I suppose is a whole nother um, potential conver conversation. Um, but I think, the thing about cereal, like when I heard that, it's like, what exactly did they sell when they sold cereal? I guess they sold the the talent because I think that first one was so appealing because of the mystery of it. You know, we really didn't know listening to that podcast whether he did it or not. And we had to like keep changing our mind and hearing new evidence. And that was so good that it set the tone. But I don't think they've, I listened to the second one too. And I I haven't listened to, to, to more because, I, and I sort of feel like, that mystery, that really special nugget of them, of the real mystery that was in, in, entrenched in that is what made it so successful, don't you think? Yeah, well, I, yeah, go ahead, Mercy, yeah. I do think so. I think that, you know, they were able to find uh, um, a case with a really interesting story and the, the reporting style, the narrative style, the narrative and reporting style podcast that I have come to uh, know and love have done exactly that. This is someone's real life and this is a real case that you can dive into. I think John, um, sorry, Dirty John out of the LA Times is a really is another great example of that. Um, but what's it, it called, Dirty actually, John? Dirty John is a podcast um, about a, a successful interior designer who is looking for love, and you know she finds it in a um, scam artist who, and you kind of go back and forth in the same in the same way that you do in this uh, first um, season of Serial, where you don't know if you can trust this guy or not. Um, it's based off of reporting out of the LA Times. And when I say that this that particular story, you know, um, reporting out of the LA Times has had legs, they made the podcast out of it called Dirty John. And now there's a movie about it. I'm, I'm sorry, a TV show about it on Bravo. So if you are in the show hole, Bravo, <laughs> Dirty John is, is one to pick up. But I think that with Serial, um, being able to tap into... Uh, the resources of the New York Times, not to say that they were deprived of resources prior to this, but being able to tap into the reporting resources of the New York Times might expose them to a lot more of these types of intriguing stories from real life. Right. I think you know, it does. It, first of all, the New York Times just flat out has pumped a lot of money into the hands of the people who do cereal, which is, as most people know, kind of a, a, a product that was birthed by This American Life and Ira Glass. Um, I, and I do think that that will make a difference in terms of the kinds of projects that they want to undertake. I think it's a lot of the reason why they, they did this. And for the New York Times, yeah, they, they have figured out. And Mercy, you're making a great point here, which is podcasts, because they are relatively inexpensive to make. Uh, also become this kind of, you know, lab in which people try to develop new content. And sometimes that new content winds up being vertically integrated in the way that you describe with uh, Dirty John. So when when you hit gold, you know, in in all of the panning that goes on at the Sutter's Creek of podcasts, you, you often can hit, hit some fairly significant gold. And, and it is a way, I think, to do that. And I also just want to quickly say that one of the things that they figured out how to do on that first episode of Serial, and you've both kind of alluded to it, is put the the listener kind of in with the reporter slash content creator, right? So although all the way along you hear all of Sarah Koenig's 
doubts. I mean, you know, imagine 60 minutes where Dan Rather was turning to you going, I don't even know if I've got this right. Plus, I'm starting <laughs> to really have, you know, I mean, just like constantly all the time, you actually hear that kind of primary process, which is something you can do on podcasts because you have an unlimited amount of time. So it really wouldn't be convenient for, Absolutely. you know, Scott Pelley to share his his hopes and fears or some irrelevant detail the way they can do there. Yeah, you were saying something worse. Yeah, and I think that I think that Sarah Koenig nails it, uh, and I think that you know she offers us a a model um, through you know that a lot of other podcasts that came after it have taken up. I think S Town is a really good example of that as well, right? Where the listener develops a relationship with a reporter and not necessarily with the story, right? And and it becomes a different way of of storytelling. This um, entirely new form of storytelling where. I mean, to some degree, we kind of need this in a time when reporters are being um, alienated and, and, and persecuted by uh, 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 Trump and his administration. I think we're leading into a place where develop, being able, a listener or viewer being able to develop a better relationship with the reporter and also hearing that background process, right? I don't know that I got this right. Or this is what surprised me when I found this piece out. And at times, Sarah Koenig will stop everything and say, and, and just say, I'm sorry, did I hear that right? Where it, there's a conversation happening, and the conversation isn't isn't between her and her interviewee; it's between her and the the, the listener, and it's right. a I, really cool form of storytelling. Right. I, I think podcasts can do that well. I think In the Dark is another podcast that really kind of gives you an indication of just the difficulties the reporters are having functioning in whatever environment they're trying to function in. So yes. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of all that. I should also say. Uh, that uh, they have dropped, a Serial has dropped a new show. I don't think it has the Serial logo on it. It's called Nice White Parents. It's basically a show about what's, uh, who makes education reform especially different. Uh, it's a limited series about building a better school system. Uh, and yeah, I think the title's kind of a giveaway. A new limited series about building a better school system and what gets in the way. Nice white parents. Uh, all right. So uh, let's take a little break here. We've got to talk uh, about I May Destroy You after this. We're back. Uh, this is The Nose with Irene Papoulis and Mercy Quay. Uh, I May Destroy You is a British comedy drama series that debuted on HBO, then aired in its entirety much more quickly on BBC One, which is why they know things now that we don't know, even though we started first. Eight episodes have aired in the U.S. There are four more to come. Uh, it's a difficult story to describe, uh, but it begins with as kind of an inciting incident um an author uh, played by the series creator uh, michaela cole as arabella who has come back from a trip to italy to face a book deadline she's already written one very catchy book about uh, being a millennial that is has done well so her team are uh, they're very interested in getting another thing going i think the people that we hear her talk to after she's back from this trip to Italy, where she was basically supposed to finish this book, uh, these are her agents. So here we go. I, uh, I got your voice notes. I know you did, yeah. 
I was worried. Glad you're safe. Started watching Banged Up Abroad every weekend. Didn't know where else to look for you. I knew you were fine once I came across your Instagram. Posting photos every day. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, my private life. Sure. Did you see my email? Uh, um, I didn't go to Italy to be glued to my inbox, Francine. I went to write. Arabella? Yeah. We believe in you. Well, that's, you know, that's why we represent you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you know, Henny House are expecting. So if there's anything else we can do... Oh, I'm good, I'm good. Just minor revisions. Okay, great. Well, um, can't, I can't wait to read. I might do an all-nighter in the office just to go over it all, see what I need to... Oh, no, well, look, it's available. So, yeah, we could pop in with feedback. Um, I can clear the top of the day, say, um, 10 a.m. 10. Look, we'll need um, three or four hours to read before we can have feedback, won't we? So, I mean, if we're meeting at 10, and let's say we need four hours... Uh... 6 a.m. You'll have it for 6 a.m., Julian. <laughs> All right. I can say that as a uh, uh, published author who has stared down a number of book deadlines, uh, this whole se- sequence made me very nervous. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that isn't even the thing you're supposed to be nervous about. It's just the first layer of anxiety. Uh, the, this The fact that you said minor revision, just a few minor revisions, right. and you're thinking, no, it's probably more than that. We've all kind of... Yeah told lies about how far along we are with the book. But um, so anyway, the the night that unfolds does go tragically wrong. Um, I I don't want to do too many uh, plot spoilers or plot giveaways, but it's, you know, it's it's in the first episode that she becomes aware or at least everything in her clouded mind points to the fact that at some point during that night, someone has spiked her drink uh, and then taken advantage of her uh, in pretty significant ways. And so that is the triggering incident that kind of gets us going uh, into this world. Um, So I just maybe just interested initially in your first impressions of this. So Mercy, why don't you get us started? How, How is this working for you? Uh, so I took a, a, a first stab at watching this last week and I was like, Ooh, yeah, not in the right headspace for this. So let me come, let me revisit it. Um, and then when I did revisit it, sort of a little bit more prepared for it, I watched seven episodes in a night. Um, and, um, <laughs> so this isn't really, I mean, like if you're in a show hole, right, watch this, um, be, but yeah. be prepared for what you're consuming. Um, I will say that if I had to sum this up in, a sentence or so um i may destroy you is a complete and total rebuke of toxic masculinity and our uh, standards of rape culture our understanding and acceptance of rape culture uh, i think that there are, you know in assessing each of the male characters i'm trying to see what redeeming quality any of the male characters have in this series right and i'm trying to get into Michaela Cole's head and and figure out exactly what she wants me to take away from this. And part of it is in, you know, every single decent guy that we see has some kind of scary, you know, mask off moment where you're like, oh, wow, actually you too. Right. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I think it, I think it's beautifully done, and I think it 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 shows such growth and range from Chewing Gum, her first production. Um, and I, I mean, I, I would highly recommend it, and I'd love to hear what Irene thinks. Go ahead, um, Irene. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I have to say that when I first started 
Um, I don't know if it was for the same reason as you, Mercy, but I just kind of felt like, oh my gosh, how am I going to watch this? It's so fast. I can't understand what they're saying, you know? And then I sort of had to break down and put on the, put on the subtitles so I could, so I didn't have to keep. Oh yeah, I absolutely watched it with subtitles. Yeah. Yeah. Because their accents are so, and they talk so fast and everything. And I was like, how can I stand, you know, eight episodes of this? But after... I don't know, about 10 minutes or after a while, it slowed down a little bit. And I just really also, like Mercy, got very, very sucked into the, because the characters are so, um, uh, you know, interesting that the characterization is great of, of especially the three main characters. And you just feel like you know them and you're, you know, but, but I also very much agree that I, I wasn't sure, you know, I was thinking about the plot and, and I mean, it's interesting that you put it, I don't know what she wants us to, me, us to get out of this. And I think I felt the same way, but I, but then I was thinking it's more just like, she was just saying like, here it is, this is what happens. This is what happens to young people who are going out and having all kinds of sexual relationships with all kinds of, of people. And it's a mess. And I just want you to look at it you know, yeah. is kind of how I felt about it. And that was really, that became, has become very interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the next four episodes. I, I found I the, the, go ahead. Me, yeah, go ahead, Mercy. The other thing for me was, you know, from episode one, this was very apparent to me. She was using, I, I mean, images that desensitized us to, you know, the violence that we were going to um, consume later on, right? I mean, it, the scene that uh, you just played, Colin, the viewer sees her sitting on a toilet, right? She's sitting on a toilet throughout that entire scene and in a way that you don't actually see women in television do, right? So she's sitting on the toilet, the door is open, she, her roommate passes by and welcomes her back from Italy. Her underwear is around her ankles and that kind of imagery is, is it sort of carries out throughout the rest of the show sort of, again, desensitizing us to um, how, to the gravity of getting us really used to the weight of the, the content matter. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting how she does that because it sort of inter, it, it sort of weaves in this understanding that rape culture is in our life and it is as visceral as we want to make it or it's as common as sitting on the toilet, which, is, which happens every day. Right. I, I, you know, the way physicality is used in, in the series is very interesting to me. And it's um, an even maybe a l bigger leap from that uh, is there is a scene in which menstruation uh, is shown in, in more detail and with a man, a man who is ultimately and not in the too far too distant future about to do something pretty bad and a pretty massive betrayal. But uh, a little moment where he's able to sort of handle menstruation and sorry if you're having lunch or anything, but a blood clot uh, kind of tenderly. Uh, and yeah. um, so there's you don't a, see that movie very often. No, there, there's a real visceral quality to this. The, the series that I keep contrasting it to and maybe you guys can give me some help with this so i've been thinking about it a lot in terms of the series girls because girls was also uh, you know about young women turned loose in an exciting urban playland new york this time instead of london uh and 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 experimenting and uh meeting guys some of whom were creeps but others of whom really they they could trust and could uh, tried to for, form loving relationships with, and it kind there was a little bit of a more we're all in, in this together sense in in girls. I feel as though Mercy, as you said, kind of at the top, you know, it, it really is hard to find a man 
who who doesn't? What did you say? Have these kind of mask off moments where the monster is revealed? And, and I do wonder if that's kind of her her primary view uh, of men all the way through. I mean, so learning that we, we you know, Michaela Cole herself doesn't consider herself a, a, a she considers herself a romantic, as in a romanticism, right? Yeah, um, right. A romantic in the in, in the same way that someone could be apolitical, that kind of a. exactly, yeah. right. And so um, I think that putting that lens on top of this, I, it was interesting. I wanted to see how putting that lens on top of you know, the way I viewed this piece changed it. And I don't know that it does. And I think in particular because of the one scene where she finally does have a copy to, to read to her um, her publisher and she's reading it out and she says, she spouts off a couple lines and it's, you know, I, I, I haven't been tuned into the problems of being a woman. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I haven't been tuned into the problems of being a woman because I was too busy being black and poor. Um, and I think that your juxtaposition to girls is really interesting because for me, I could never get into girls. For me, it didn't feel like I was I was the um, target audience. And even if I was, they weren't doing a really great job of, of telling me that I was the target audience. Mm-hmm. Here, Michaela Cole really does a beautiful job at um, depicting what a person's intersectionality does in the context of rape culture. Um, and I think her rebuke of men in it, um, you know, I don't know if that changes the way I assess the piece at all. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it is in a way it's a rebuke of men, but it's also a rebuke of romanticism, you know? So it, it, in a way it's sort of like the idea that you would yearn for someone or long for someone is kind of a, fantasy that that is not achievable in this world at least so far you know and it seems like it's when I heard that she was a romantic a romantic um I uh, th- I started to see that 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 in a way she's indicting any any urges that people have toward falling in love in in any way that I might recognize it you know that if you do you're gonna it's gonna get messed up period here you know and I think that's that's horrible in a way, but it seems also very much how that's very much in the air these days, you know, that that idea that there's something suspect about romantic love and romance and and any traditional ideas we have about that. Um, But I I also have to say one thing about the humor, too, because in spite of all this really serious material, it's also very subtly funny. So many times, a couple of times I really laughed. I mean, even just her sort of mantra that she says to make herself feel better with her anxiety, it's like, okay, you know, people have it worse, there's children dying in Syria, and some people don't have a cell phone, you know, as though that's one of the things that's like, can you imagine, like, that's the, that would be like the worst, you know, such a hard, some people have that horrible thing that anything that happened to me can't be as bad, because some people don't have a cell phone, I thought that was pretty funny, and, you know, in a dark way, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of wit in there that's really charming, and really, really is, you know, goes along with the seriousness. I, you know, Mercy, one thing that I was struck by, uh, apropos of what Irene is just saying, too, is the way that social media is like you know, a, a major character almost in, in this. So many things that happen 
are tinctured by social media. Sometimes people do really bad things because of something else that they want to do on, on social media. But it is just this constant background all the time, which I, I realize closely resembles real life. And this is also one of these series where text messages and things like that sometimes sometimes bubble up onto the screen so you can see what's going on. But I, I, I don't know what the what the commentary exactly is, Mercy, but there's a way in which I think she's saying that social media makes all this stuff somehow infinitely worse. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I wouldn't even just reduce it to, or, or keep it at just social media. I, I would say all forms of media, right? Because, you know, we have a flashback to her in um, Catholic school and what seems like maybe mm -hmm. high school. Um, and, you know, uh, one of her classmates is caught up in a situation where, uh, you know, she is um, uh, photographed in a intimate moment with a guy who was taking advantage of her. And that photograph, you know, turns into uh, a device for the rest of the for the rest of the episode. It was like, you know, the 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 young woman who at the time consented in a questionable way i think we would see through me too eyes um then takes it a step further and frames the young boy with uh, with rape and then michaela cole's character um arabella and her best friend terry you know uh were they're given they come across um these photos of her in the moment and it turns from Prior to finding these photos, she, they were talking about the incident and, like, you know, the blood doesn't lie. Then they saw the photos and it was like, well, the photos don't lie. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I mean, there's this turning point, And I see that you're right. Right. It's interwoven throughout the entire piece where some way or another, Arabella's um, interaction or engagement with social media either worsens the issues that she's experiencing or empowers her. Right. We see that with. You know, in, again, in the clip that you played, the publisher is saying, yeah, I thought I didn't know that you were OK. I started to worry until I saw your social media, right, until I saw your Instagram. But then at the same time, as it's being used against her in that moment, later on, when she's feeling really down and depressed, and we know that as a viewer, she posts a, uh, you know, a, um, a power fist on social media and gets all of these affirmations. And so it really is interwoven throughout the entire piece in every episode, as I think you're right, um, a major character that is unnamed because that's how right. it is for people yeah right? I, I, and i, mean, I think i think also you're seeing a world where people don't show up and present their card your calling card and let's meet and i mean you know tinder and grinder and stuff like that there's a lot of things that happen kind of spontaneous spontaneously and i think we see that as a little bit of the engine behind this we've got to take a break I just would feel oh, can bad. Can I just say one more thing? Yes, yeah. Say it's one not, more thing. I've never seen girls, even though I, I know I'm a bad nose panelist. I've never seen. I've never seen it, but I've seen. I've watched almost all of Insecure, and yep. that's another one that's like yes. a lighter version, but it also has those bubbles of social media where where what they're what they're saying in their text is integrated into the dialogue, and it's just it's sort of a an, a version of it. I think anyway, yes, that's, and that's I also it. think that that's most that is a hundred percent because these are two black storytellers right and i think it cannot right. go without saying that this is a, a story about what it means to be a black woman in in london at the time 
Right. Yeah. So we got to take that break. I would just say quickly, we have said nothing about Michaela Cole's performance. It's really remarkable. She is uh, also just sort of a remarkable person to look at. She's like a sculpture yes. that came so to life striking. or something. She's just so absolutely, uh, you can't take your eyes off her. And she has a lot of interesting things she does with that remarkable face of hers. All right. We've yeah. got to take a break and we'll come back. Hi, welcome back to the news. Uh, I have to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's been in the studio making everything hum there uh, and making it possible for us to work remotely. We are so, so lucky to have her doing that. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this particular episode, and he and I are going to try to do another episode on Monday. Uh, we actually will uh, look a little bit uh, at how COVID is in, um, affecting sports right now, and we're also going to try to only have guests named Ben. There's no particular reason why we're doing that, but... Just the way it might work out. Uh, all right, so a time to talk to our panelists, Mercy Quay and Irene Papoulis, uh, about their endorsements. Uh, Mercy, I'll let you go first. You usually uh, lead us off into outer space. I don't know if that's going to happen this time. Yeah, still going to do it. Um, so NASA just launched their Mars 2020 Perseverance uh, rover mir uh, mission. So I, I was a big fan of uh, calling it hindsight 2020 as opposed to perseverance but you know that didn't pick up anywhere so if you would like live updates um to see what rover is looking at and um you know updates on the mission just visit and this is easy to remember space.com to sign up for like uh live updates there um tacitly related to space i would also say it, um if you are in a show hole right now um star trek discovery episodes one and two are um, available on CBS, uh, I think All Access is what it's called. Um, and for a more recent um, uh, view into the world of Star Trek, uh, Picard is also available on uh, CBS All Access. And then lastly, just because we talked about it in um, this episode, in, in this conversation, Dirty John is a really great podcast to pick up. <laughs> and and if, if you need some easy binging, that will last you about a week listen to Dirty John, and then also watch the TV show on Bravo. All right. So there you go. From Mercy Quay, uh, lots of uh, stuff. See, you don't ever, you still don't need to leave the house. There's still stuff uh, for yeah. you to get into. Uh, Irene Papoulos, what have you got? Thanks, Mercy, for that. Um, I, have two, I have two books in activity, but I'll go really fast. So the first is I, I wasn't going to read Mary Trump's book because I felt like I already knew everything that was in it. Um, but I did, and I, and I really recommend it. It's really fascinating. She's not political. you know. So the things that you've heard of are interesting, but the more interesting thing is just like being inside that family. I mean, it doesn't necessarily justify his behavior, but it's really interesting to see the psychological dynamic, and I, I recommend it. Um, I also read the... Pl uh, M reading The Plague by Camus. If you feel like revisiting a classic, reading is a nice thing to do at home. It's almost hilarious how similar and familiar a lot of what happens in that book from a, from a hundred years ago uh, is to what's going on now. And it, if you feel like it's sort of an escape because it's a different world, but it's also familiar in a hilarious, in a very interesting way. So I'd recommend that book too. Um, and the activity is walk going, you know, I, 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 my, I'm not, I haven't gone back to the gym yet, but I go for these long walks and I used to have a loop that I would always do. But now what I recommend is always taking a different route when you go for a walk, because I've found neighborhoods that are 
half a mile from me that I didn't know existed. And I always turn, I take, you know, like, let me just take a different turn than I would usually turn when I come to this corner. And it's just kind of like woken me up in a really interesting way and gotten me to know my neighborhood. So I recommend going on a walk and just not knowing where you're going. Uh, those are all great recommendations. Uh, I'm going to uh, just focus for a moment on the soundtrack of I May Destroy You, which is in, in itself, I think, a remarkable set of choices. And uh, so Spotify, I think, now has it uh, as a, a list that you can play. Uh, I would recommend, if you're going to watch um, I May Destroy You, to be sitting there with your Shazam, or I, I use an app called SoundHound, the same kind of thing. Because uh, the truth is, you don't, you're not going to want to know the name of every single song, uh, but there are some songs you're really going to want to know the name of. And it's like I, I today discovered Love Shy by Christine Bond, which was playing to kind of during a flashback. So uh, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of just another way to enjoy the show. And really the, the choices that they have made uh, are, are just terrific and interesting. So and with that in mind, I would just also want to say that you know, we're all struggling with moods right now. And uh, there are things that are now getting piled on top of COVID for all of us. And in some cases, like really big things that are getting piled on top of COVID and, uh, and, and an unemployment and all, all this stuff. So it's hard. It's hard to change your mood. Um, I, I just wanted, you know, kind of in a similar way to the way Irene endorsed, I just want to say music, you know, music I have discovered on days when I really feel like I cannot take another step. Uh, I just, I am all out of moves. Just hearing AP, the right piece of music or even the close to the right piece of music, it really is just, is, it's like taking a drug that works instantly. So uh, I'll mention that um, an artist I really like, it's uh, actually one woman named Kate Stables, but her, uh, her performing name is This Is The Kit. And she has a new album coming out, but there's a new song called This Is What You Did. This is what you did by This Is The Kit. So there's a lot of this is in there. But if you Google that, you'll be fine. If you really need to cheer up, Google Penguins Enjoying Bubble Machine. All right. Penguins Enjoying. That's not the name of a rock group or anything. That's just Penguins <laughs> Enjoying a Bubble Machine. But you, you you will be made happier by all that. I was made happier by the chance to talk to uh, two wonderful panelists today. That would be Irene Poulos, uh, who teaches writing at Trinity College. Mercy Quay, founder, principal consultant for the Narrative Project, columnist with Hearst, Connecticut Media Group. All right. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for whatever you did. <laughs>